It is really a real joy to be here. I have been related to Amen in more ways than one for the last nine years. And I remember when we had our first meeting at Cahutta Springs, a small group of physicians and dentists met together to dream about an organization that would provide spiritual care, nurture for physicians and dentists that would focus particularly on how Christ could be made known in the marketplace and how Jesus could be exalted in offices, how physical, mental, and spiritual care could be integrated, and also how busy physicians and dentists could be uh, guided on mission trips and how mission trips could be planned for them. And to see what has happened over the last nine years with the way God has blessed this organization is really quite remarkable. Conferences on the East Coast and on the West Coast, some of those conferences, particularly on the West Coast with the medical students from Loma Linda, um, having four or 500 participants. God has incredibly blessed Amen. And I believe that Amen's destiny is brighter in the future than it has been in the past, that God will continue to bless the organization, that it'll continue to grow as it stays faithful to its purpose. I was talking to Elder Wilson, our General Conference President, on the phone today and shared with him that I would be here with you tonight. And he said to me, he said, be sure to tell the Amen group how we deeply appreciate their work. These physicians who day by day are interfacing with the patients, how they're praying with them, how they're sharing Christ with them, and they're such a part of the mission of the church. So on behalf of Elder Wilson, I want to thank you for the ministry that you have, and I I really use that word advisedly because it is ministry. You are ministering for Christ day by day uh, for the kingdom of God. So I know that the Lord is going to richly and continue to bless your uh, ministry as you continue it for Jesus. Well, that was a timer that told me to start preaching. (laughs) Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. We just uh, really desire tonight, as we are launching into this patient experience, we really desire to uplift Jesus, to see how he would interact with patience. Open our eyes, encourage our hearts, lead us deeper in our knowledge of you, grant to us a clearer understanding of what it means to minister like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we begin a series of presentations on the patient experience. We're going to divide our presentations really into two parts. First, I'll share a spiritual principle, and we'll look at a principle in the life of Jesus. That principle will largely come from John, the fourth chapter, and so I'll make really four presentations on John, chapter four. We'll look at Jesus accepting the assignment, Jesus wearied at the well, Jesus ministering to deeper needs, and Jesus making an eternal offer. Now, as I unfold or unpack a spiritual principle, then Des will come up and say, how does this apply in a contemporary 21st century setting? 
How do you apply this in a dental office? How do you apply this in a medical office? How do you apply this in a hospital setting? So we will interact together. Uh, tomorrow morning, particularly, we will have a breakout session, at least one of them, maybe two of them, where we reflect on some of these principles and we wrestle with some of the questions. In each presentation, we'll unfold eternal principles in the light of evidence-based science with applications for a 21st century clinical setting. Now, it's our desire that this series will deepen our understanding of God's purpose, his calling as medical professionals, and really will make an impact in our practices. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to take them and turn to John chapter 4. In the fourth chapter of the book of John, Jesus shares with us eternal principles of ministering as medical missionaries in comprehensive medical evangelism in the 21st century. He shares with us principles to do that. We're going to look at John 4, verses 1 to 5 tonight, and then in the morning we'll start with verse 6. So if you have your Bible, let's start with John chapter 4. We're going to look there, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Jesus did not want any competition in his ministry with another worker. And when Jesus sensed that the temperature was getting a little high because of competition over success, rather than be involved in that conflict, Jesus left the scene to minister in a different area because for Jesus, relationships were important. For Jesus, Christianity is manifest in loving relationships. All doctrine, rightly understood and practically applied, leads to loving relationships. And so Jesus understood that very clearly, so he left. But it is the next two verses that I want to take a very serious look with, at with you. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go to Samaria. Now the question is, why did Jesus need to go to Samaria? Why? And it's that question that we want to unpack tonight. Now, some commentators say the reason he needed to go to Samaria, go through Samaria on the way to Galilee is that there was no other way there. The commentators who say that have not visited Israel. There are other ways there. In fact, if you're in Jerusalem, you can travel the 21 miles down to Jericho, cross the Jordan, and go up what we would say now on the Jordanian side. In those days, you'd cross the Jordan and miss Samaria altogether, and you can travel northward. Now, it is a little longer that way. Probably would take you four to five days by foot rather than the shorter way through Samaria. So, so the idea that, that there was no other way just doesn't hold water. Some say that Jesus wanted to get there quickly, so he went through Samaria. It is true, but it seems to me that that argument demeans the very essence of who Jesus was. Jesus didn't merely do things because he wanted to do something quickly. 
The third reason some people say, which is maybe closer to the truth, but I still don't think it's there, they say, well, Jesus knew that the woman at the well was there and he wanted to meet her. I really wonder about that. I think it's quite speculative because in his humanity, did he really know that that woman was going to be there that day? I think not. I think this phrase, and when you read it in the original language in verse 4, it says he needed to go through Samaria. In the Greek said it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. He, there's another version that's really even more emphatic in the Greek. It says he had to go through. In other words, he didn't have an alternative. Do we get any clues in John 3 after the experience with Nicodemus in why Jesus possibly had to go through Samaria? We do. Look at John chapter 3, verse 34 and 35. This, to me, unpacks an eternal truth about Jesus' ministry that is applicable to our own ministries. And it helps us to understand this expression in John 4, verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. If you look back at John 3, verse 34 and 35, it says, For him whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. It's the phrase, he whom God has sent. Jesus was totally committed to the Father's will. And the reason he had to go through Samaria was because he sensed in his soul, he sensed in his spirit, he sensed in his inward being that this was part of the divine purpose. Jesus didn't fully understand the divine purpose. He didn't fully understand he was going to meet the woman at Samaria. He didn't fully comprehend the significance of the moment. But this he knew. The spirit was leading him through Samaria. This he knew that going through Samaria was part of an overall divine purpose for his life. He traveled through Samaria because he had an inner sense that he was being directed by God. He may have not understood all the reasons, but he had such a deep relationship with God that he had an inner sense of daily divine guidance. He went because he had a divine summons to go. Ellen White makes a fascinating statement about Jesus in Desire of Ages, page 208. It's a troubling statement, in fact, a difficult statement for us to understand fully. She says, the Son of God was so surrendered to the Father's will and dependent upon his power, so utterly was Jesus emptied of self that he made no plans for himself. Organized physicians and dentists, it seems a little strange. He accepted God's plans for him. And day by day, the Father unfolded his plans. So should we depend upon God that our lives may be the simple outworking of his will. Desire of Ages 208. Now, if you take that statement alone, it's quite confusing, quite perplexing. Here you have Jesus with this purpose-driven life. Here you have Jesus with this, this divine internal sense of being guided by God, this overall purpose of ministry and service. And it, you have this rather strange statement that says he makes no plans for himself. Is this implying some slipshod, disorganized uh, 
lifestyle that says, gets up in the morning and says, God, I'm not going to make any plans. You just kind of direct me. There is a corollary statement in the book Heavenly Places, page 213, that I think defines this. Here, Ellen White says, surrender all your plans to God. So I cannot surrender plans which I don't have. So the point of this reference is that as I come to Christ every day, every morning, with my agenda, with my plans, with my purposes, they are laid at the feet of Jesus. Surrender your plans to God to be carried out or given up as his providence shall indicate. In this manner, you may day by day be giving your life in harmony with his plans and purposes into the hands of God, accepting his plans instead of your own, no matter how much they may interfere with your arrangements, nor how many pleasant projects may have to be abandoned. Thus, the life will be molded more and more after the divine model, and the peace of God which passes understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, these statements don't indicate any kind of slipshod, disorganized approach to life. But here's the heart of the matter. As you and I begin each life, day, before going to the office, before going to the hospital, before going out to serve in any capacity, on our knees we say, Jesus, this day is yours. Jesus, I, the plans that I have, I lay them at your feet. I surrender them to you. If there's some adjustment in my plans, if there's something that I don't see, if there is some Nicodemus waiting to be ministered to, if there is some woman at the well, but I have a different agenda, Lord, help me to live a life that is so close to you, that I, that's so aligned with you, that is so intimately sensitive to the divine radar of divine guidance. Help me to have that sense of your guidance so I don't miss opportunities that you place in my life to serve, to bless, to touch other lives with your kingdom. Ralph Waldo Emerson puts it this way. The purpose of life is not to be happy. It's to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, and to have made some difference that you've lived and lived well. Some of you might be familiar with a book that Dr. Jeffrey Gervin has written. There are some things about that book, frankly, that trouble me. They, they board on Eastern mysticism. But Dr. Jeffrey Gervin is an oncologist, cancer specialist, and he's well known in his field. He practiced medicine for well over 20 years, but Gervin became disillusioned somewhat with the way medicine is practiced in America. And so he began looking at a more holistic approach to life, and he's written a new book that is quite insightful called The Journey Through Cancer. And I want to read to you an excerpt from that book that really points out the purpose of medicine today in the light of the ministry of Christ. So Gervin says, I believe it's time to enlarge our vision of medicine for cancer patients and for all patients. In this new vision, medicine has two distinct purposes. First, the relative purpose of medicine is to relieve symptoms and cure disease. So he said, okay, medicine has two purposes. The first purpose is to, to relieve symptoms, cure disease. 
He said, but also is the ultimate purpose that extends beyond the physical realm to include the heart, the mind, the spirit of every patient, and indeed humanity as a whole. See, Jesus lived his life with that sense of purpose. Jesus wasn't interested in only touching blind eyes and they were open physically. He wanted to touch blind eyes so that they can be open spiritually. Jesus wasn't only interested in touching deaf ears so they could hear human voices. He wanted to touch spiritual ears so they could hear divine voices. Jesus wasn't only interested in healing a body that was racked with the palsy. He was interested in that because Jesus had compassion, sympathy, he cared, he loved. He wanted to relieve suffering. But Jesus wanted to heal palsied hearts and palsied minds. And so the purpose of medicine is far larger than healing the body. It is touching the spirit, touching the mind, touching the soul, touching the inner fabric of the beings. Living our lives with a sense of purpose makes all the difference. Before going to your office or the hospital, just as sensing that Jesus was sent to Samaria to meet a desperate, hopeless woman in an unpromising situation, you're sent as a dentist. You're sent as a physician. You're sent as a nurse. You're sent as a health care provider by God into your world to minister hope to people who at times are hopeless, to inspire the desperate, to lift the vision of the despondent, to encourage the downhearted, to care for the needy, to treat complex cases with the utmost professionalism, with the supreme recognition that you're an ambassador the king of the universe. 2,000 years ago, Jesus met with a small group of amen medical missionaries. These disciples said amen to everything Jesus said. <laughs> and he said to them, as the Father sends me into the world, so send I you. You and I have a higher calling than dispensing medicine. We have a higher calling than operating on diseased bodies. We have a higher calling than removing decayed teeth. Our calling is to minister to human beings as ambassadors for Christ, representing Jesus' love and grace, and treating every human being that comes into our offices with respect and dignity, recognizing that their children of God. In Samaria that morning, unexpectedly, Jesus met a complete stranger. And each day in your office, complete strangers are going to walk in. You've never met them before. Many of them are totally unknown to you. But each one is a child of God with mental, emotional, and spiritual needs, as well as physical needs. The woman at the well needed water, but she needed much more. You know, I was impressed with an article written in the Christian medical journal called Nucleus. I love that title, Nucleus, you know, the heart of the thing, the cell. And J. Wyatt Watt wrote an article, and it's not a new article. It was written back in April of 1997. And this is what he said about this holistic ministry, about this vision of Christ. You know, this vision that Jesus had of this woman. He said, as health professionals, we frequently come in contact with strangers who are facing tragedy. 
Yet emotional involvement is something which is not encouraged within health professions. Even in the face of tragedy, any display of emotion is undesirable. The image that the modern health professional strives to portray is that of the cool, dispassionate, detached, slightly cynical expert. But I strongly believe that as followers of Jesus, we're called to be involved with the stranger as he was. Time and again, Luke and other gospel writers emphasize that Jesus was not a disinterested observer of suffering and pain. He was deeply and emotionally involved. God, through Jesus, has entered fully into the human experience and is, and is totally and emotionally involved in the joys and the agony of his creation. Empathy, the way of Christ, emphasizes our common humanity. I care. I'm involved. I'm a human being like you. We are in this together, is the attitude of Christ. The patient experience begins with the first interaction they have with you or your staff. The patient experience begins not with care, but with ethos. And there's a difference between care and ethos. You can care without ethos, and you can have ethos without care. But when you have ethos and care, you have the heart of what it means to minister holistically. Ethos is the sympathy, the compassion, the love, the kindness, the unselfishness, the service attitude that comes across from you in those few seconds that you meet these patients for the first time. Now, Jesus faced some major challenges in Samaria. Let's review for a moment the conflict between the Jews and Samaritans. Let's go back and take a, a thumbnail look at that conflict and try to draw some principles from the very conflict itself and how Jesus treated this woman with such ethos and concern. In 720 BC, the Assyrians attacked Samaria. It took them three years to conquer the Samaritans, and when they did that, you can read the narrative in 2 Kings, when they did that, they did what many of the heathen pagan tribes did at that time, many of the warring tribes. They attempted to depopulate Samaria. So they took thousands of Samaritans and they depopulated them in places like Babylon and other places. Then they repopulated Samaria with Assyrians and with those from other neighboring countries. But you can never depopulate an entire population. There were some Jews that remained. Those Jews intermarried with the Samaritans. Now this was anathema to the Jews in the southern kingdom, because as you recall, Samaria's in the northern kingdom. So this is anathema to Jews in the southern kingdom. You are accursed if you intermarry, because you remember when the Jews in the southern kingdom were overrun by Babylon, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they would not intermarry in captivity. So they looked at the Jews in the northern kingdom who had intermarried as total betraying their Jewish heritage. 
is totally turning their back on everything it meant to be, to, to be Jews. So picture this scene. The Samaritan Jews intermarry. They are considered a curse, an anathema, by the southern Jews. The southern Jews are attacked in the southern kingdom. They're brought into Media and Persia. They don't intermarry in captivity. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, our Xerxes passes a decree. They come back to Jerusalem. What's the first thing they want to do? In the days of Nehemiah, they build the wall and they want to rebuild the temple. The Samaritan Jews say to them, hey, we're going to come down and help you rebuild the temple. What do these southern Jews say? No way. No way. You are not taking one brick and putting it in that one block. No way. So there is this bitter rival. There is this horrible conflict. And this feud leads to the Samaritans to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And although the feud between the Jews and the Samaritans bitterly waged on for 400 years, it smoldered as bitter and resentful as ever in the days of Christ. Now the conventional Jewish thinking was that Samaria was a place to be avoided at all costs. But Jesus went anyway. Where ministry is needed, Jesus goes. Where hope is needed, Jesus goes. Where sympathy is needed, Jesus goes. Jesus is a radical in this sense. He defies conventional thinking. Now, sometimes we too are called to defy conventional thinking. We're called to minister for ministry's sake, serve for service's sake, give for giving's sake, love for love's sake. There are times when God calls us to minister in the context of our own tiredness and exhaustion. As if that person were the only person in the world. I recently have been introduced through a friend, and I have not met this individual personally, but my friend has a business arrangement with him, to a physician that has really um, captivated my thinking. He's not a Christian, he's a Hindu. His name is Dr. Devi Shetty, and I have a very close friend who is building a hospital with Dr. Shetty, but I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Shetty and why he impresses me so much. He totally defies conventional thinking. Dr. Shetty is a cardiologist. He now owns 20 cardiology hospitals in India. He is considered to be one of the world's most brilliant strategic thinkers, according to Forbes magazine. Recently, he spoke at Stanford University to a standing ovation. Now, Shetty is getting results similar to American cardiologists for $1,800 for heart transplants. He wants to cut it down to eight to 900. He's an amazing man. He defies all conventional thinking. His lecture at Stanford was called The Price of Human Life. The Price of Human Life. Now this is what Shetty does. He has developed a sophisticated technological system in every one of his 20 hospitals in India. By noon every day, he knows the profit margin of every single hospital the day before, 24 hours before. 
his sophisticated system of technology enables him to know. And do you know why he wants to know that? To know how many free cases he and his physicians can do in the afternoon. He says, look, I know we need to make money to keep the hospital afloat, but that's not my goal. My goal is to save as many lives as possible. And the way I can do that is to reduce the cost. He has developed an insurance program for one million Indian farmers so they can have insurance. He saw the price of hospital gowns and he said it's too much. He got a group of young Indian entrepreneurs and he said you develop a hospital gown business and give me it at half price. They did it. He looked at the people that were serving making beds in the hospital. He said, how can we reduce the cost? We'll train our own. He started a business to train people to clean the hospital. He was asked at Stanford, why do you do this? He said, one reason. Human life is incredibly valuable. And I want to do everything I can not to look at human beings as a commodity, not to look at human beings as a thing, not to look at human beings as skin covering bone, but to recognize the preciousness of life. Every human being that comes to my hospital, he said, they stand in line to come in for these heart procedures. Every child we turn away dies. And he said, to minister compassionately, empathetically to every human being is the calling of the medical profession. That whether Dr. Shetty knows it or not, is the ministry of Jesus Christ. Des, how do we apply it in the 21st century society? Thanks, Mark. What an incredible story. I have had the opportunity to get acquainted with Dr. Shetty, and he is an incredible individual, changing the way and the landscape of the economics of healthcare for the purpose of healing humanity. So uh, the question that we begin to ask at Florida Hospital is how do we actually bring about these moments of healing that are replicas of what Jesus did in his life and ministry? And so we went to a group of, of researchers, and uh, I am not a fan of attitudinal research where you check people's perceptions because those can fluctuate by the circumstances you're in. I'm a, I'm a fan of behavioral research. And over the time, behavioral research gives you the opportunity to see exactly how the people behave and behaviors are very stable, whereas attitudes and, or perceptions tend to fluctuate. So I went to a group of folks at Disney. So um, what we asked them to do was do bright spot research. And those of you who are in psychiatry know that the Psychiatric Association has made some breakthroughs and the whole idea of bright spot counseling has really come from a 1958 challenge by the president of the Psychiatric Society saying we have studied the dangers and the dark sides of the mind for too many years. It's time for us to begin to study what is the mind, what is happening in the mind when they're positive, when things are going right. And so that's become a whole way of counseling. It's become a very popular way of dealing with marital issues with families. When did you find a, spot, a time when things were really going right? So we came to the marketplace and said, the folks at the Disney organization called Ideas look at this for us. We specifically chose an organization that was not necessarily Christian in its roots, although many of the people and the particular principals are Christian folks, but they were used to looking at people and hearing them in the marketplace to see exactly what made it work. We said, we want you to go in and study what happens in Florida Hospital when things go right. So this is what we did. 
we did a phase one where they trained our volunteers. And during this phase one, they did 75 patients, 48 nurses, 25 family members, over 50 hours of interviews, and 2,000 pages of transcripts. Now what they did was they actually sat in the patient's rooms and watched exactly who came in. And as they sat in the room, they saw the behaviors, the interactions, and they saw the number of sequences that were happening in that room. Phase two, they took the folks from our marketing team that they had trained, they asked them to see another 99 patients. 466 visits, reports were filed, followed up by surveys, and we were able to personalize the experience. Over 500 marketing team hours were spent actually in patients' rooms watching what was happening in those rooms. So what did we find out of that? The first thing we found that when things really happen at Florida Hospital that are memorable to the patient and are life-changing, they say these things, and this comes from direct quotes from the patient. Florida Hospital's mission is coming through loud and clear. That's a summary not from me, not from some of it uh, with a Christian perspective, but from folks who are used to looking at experiences and design rides and parks most of the time. They design movies, they design various things, and they said, when we look at what's happening here, this is what happens. Your mission is coming through. It's expressed primarily through the care and compassion. And it sets Florida Hospital apart from other providers in the minds of the patients. We, we brought our leaders together from all over the church leaders and our boards and our chairman and our medical directors. We asked them, what is the essence of Adventist hospitals? What would the ministry of Christ best be known for? And they said, first of all, quality, because without quality, God can't put his name on it. You, how excellent is thy name in all the earth? We can't simply do poor quality and say, but we pray here. We don't, you know, we lose a lot of people, but we pray for them on their way out. <laughs> doesn't work, doesn't work. The excellence of the Lord must come through. We must be first, we must be leaders in excellence. We must stand at the top of our profession. We must be able to speak with the authority of clinical quality and scientific excellence. We must be able to serve with the spirit of the master. So I think medicine and the master go together. And so what happens is they said the second thing is people need to know how much we care. And that word compassion has transcended all time from the ministry of Christ when it so often says seven different times he was moved with compassion. Compassion is the key word that brings together what Mark talked about, about the ethos and caring. So they said this is the compassion that comes and the mission is directly and indirectly driven by the patient experience and it is nurses on the front line that deliver this, but everyone can participate. The extension of prayer is appreciated, even to those people who don't believe. It's a bonding, healing, nourishing action in and of itself. Then they quoted one of the patients who said, I don't believe in God. But he said, so they said, follow-up question, so why did you come to this hospital? Did you know it was a Christian hospital? He said, certainly I did. He said, well, you knew it was a Christian. Did you know it was an Adventist hospital? Yes, I did. So why did you choose to come? He said, because... You'll, they, you, they will take better care of me here because who you are, because of who you are. The fact is, people know that a lot of things happen to you in the hospital when you are not fully aware. They know that, that basically when they go into surgery, they are not aware. They are not interested in going to a place that only has an accountability to the government and to an insurance company. They like the idea of having an accountability to God. 
They like the idea of people saying, we want to treat you as a child of God. They like that feeling. I love picking up ideas from Christian doctors and who, who really make a difference in people's lives. And one of the surgeons we have actually gives a picture to the patient and has it delivered by the anesthesiologist in their interview before the surgery the next day. And it's the picture of Jesus in the surgery suite called the chief of the medical staff and says, I'll be praying for you. So the surgical schedule for the day prays for them the night before, prays for them the morning of, and basically says, I want to give you this interesting thing. One of the gentlemen he gave the picture to, we have them in postcards, showed up at our competitor hospital with the postcard in his hand, because insurance wouldn't only allow him to go to that hospital. But he brought the postcard of Jesus in surgery because the meaning that it brought to his life the last time he had been through that experience. And so it is that basically this whole understanding of Christianity and Jesus Christ is, ba is, is only compatible with two qualities, the highest quality of care and the highest quality of compassion. And those things, when they come through, things change. So if you look at the journey of a person in medicine, here's what they said to us, and this is our interpretation. So it's like the road that's going, you see that life journey, the road that's going in the horizontal direction? Life is going along fine, people are just fine, and then suddenly they have a medical episode, a medical detour, they call it, where it slices into the road of life. They didn't seek it, they didn't say, let's go to the hospital tomorrow, I hope I can get there. They did not say, I wanna have a barium blast. They didn't do that, they just said, this interrupted my life. And as a result, they have this medical detour. Now you'll notice in the middle there's a rotary. That represents that they're spending three or four days in the hospital, whatever your length of stay is, they're there. You probably have a similar experience in whatever practice you have. It may not be days, it may be hours, it may be something like this, but think of that as largely an interruption, a detour. However, there is an opportunity to create something that's significant, and that opportunity is this. The fact is, that patients are trying to make a connection to a meaningful drama in which they're living, they're the leading character. The one of their personal needs is to make sense out of life by integrating this episode into their meaning of existence. So they're trying to make sense out of this medical detour. Why did it happen? What went on? What is its meaning for life? What does it mean to my interpretation and my philosophy of life? And basically, what we look at is we are in the process of creating story. What the, what the Disney Imagineers said to us is, look, do you know that you're one of the top dramas that people will have in a hospital when they're top 40 in their lives? They will go and tell it to people. It will be a seminal moment in their lives. Will you take that moment and make that moment meaning or simply make it an incident in an episode? They said what happens is there's a difference. If you learn how to enter into their story, you can, can co-create another story. You can actually do participatory theater where they're invited onto the stage and you co-create greater meaning in life because you come together in an experience that is jointly meaningful to both of you. But you have to understand that the normal care doesn't happen that way. Normal care happens in what you would look like if you were thinking of a movie that had only commercials. And all it had was a commercial. And the person coming in was saying, I'm here to take your blood, I'm here to give you your lunch, I'm here to take you to x-ray, I'm here to find out exactly what you need from nutrition, those kinds of things. 
we can have disjointed episodes or interruptions such as commercials because people don't know why they were there or what they did in a given stay just to get during Act One, which I'll talk about tomorrow. There are 16 different departments and, and, 40, and 26 different interactions with people. So think of that, how many plays you have. 16 different, 14 different departments, 26 different interactions. That can be a series of just commercials. Hi, I'm here to make sure you've got your insurance. Or it can be suddenly adding meaning because there is a journey. And I will show you how to understand the plots of a person's life because there's three dimensions in telling a story. And those three dimensions are a plot, a stage, and an interaction. And we're gonna talk about how you can create an immersive experience in your practice where you take people through creating of a story jointly with you on the stage of meaning in the process of medicine for the individual to create a future and an understanding of God and themselves that is indelibly going to change their lives and be something that not only causes them to repeat the story, but allows them to bring the story to others. See, what Jesus did in these interactions is people walked away and they just talked about it everywhere. My favorite conversation is Mark 7, where he treats the individual who is not able to speak and he's, it is in a crisis moment where he is seeing more people than an HMO clinic can possibly see that's capitated. He is seeing all these people, and it is, they are crowded around him and they bring this guy to him who cannot speak apparently very well. He apparently had lost his hearing and now he's only able to hear a little bit or be able to speak with very much of an impediment. What does Jesus do? Well, the efficient moment would be to say, be healed. That's it, you're out of here. We did it. He takes him aside, he looks into his eyes. It's the very first time in the history of humanity that we find sign language. He puts his fingers into his ear. He touches his tongue with saliva. He puts it on the man's tongue. He sighs. Why would you sigh just before you're going to set this man free? He sighs to enter into his life. He sighs to make the story his story, to suddenly say, I understand where you are. And in that sighing, he enters into the man's story. And in that moment, when he prays that he would be released, suddenly he is free and his tongue speaks with joy. But the people all around say one thing. What do they say? He does everything so well. He does everything so well. Isn't that a fantastic patient satisfaction survey? <laughs> there it is. H caps, eat your heart out. There it is. <laughs> a patient satisfaction survey. And how did he do it? He created a third story. So here we are. Are you going to be a, a, a place where dramas are created and lives are honored and a third story that is created in which we have the theater of life. You know the surgery, center, the surgery suite used to be called the operatory, what? Theater. Because truly it is. Drama is being created in that moment. The drama of life and death. The great controversy is coming with the healer being the representative of Christ and the disease being the representative of the devil. You have all the elements of a great drama. You have a villain, the disease. You have a hero, the doctors and the caregivers. You have a superhero God. You have the supporting actors. You have all of those there. You have the star as the patient themselves. We'll go back and show you that tomorrow because you can create this tremendous drama if you realize what is really happening. And this is not about efficiency or the loss of efficiency. Jesus did that moment with the man and it made an ongoing impact. 
There are times in which Jesus moves and sees hundreds of people, but the impact that they have seems to be able to have a remarkable ability to enter into their lives at a deeper journey. So, co-creating a third story is the healing ministry of Christ. And here's the way it comes about, in the sense that, can you read that? It's your story plus the person's own story. You create our story. And the way that we begin to see how that worked when it happens in the hospital is they drew me this graph. And as I began to talk to them, it really explains what Mark was talking about earlier. It says there are three levels of care. There's the care for the body, there's the care for the mind, there's the care for the spirit. Tomorrow you'll be able to get this exact quote from the book that we give you, the monograph that we give you, but this is Denny's letter that came to us. And he said, there are two aspects of being in the hospital and, or dealing with a medical problem. The first is physical, which ranges from the critical to the comfort issues. Here, everyone I dealt with seemed knowledgeable and responsive to meeting my needs. This is why people go to hospitals, why hospitals even exist in the first place. So what he is saying to you is caring for my body is what's expected. This is why people go to hospitals. I expect good care. So what you find is they were caring for that first slice. It is the care that you would call a transaction, treating the body. And when you have good clinical care treating the body, the patients appreciate it. They're not blown away by it, but they appreciate it. But when you move to the second element, which is a continuation of Denny's letter, but from a patient's perspective, there's another very important aspect of dealing with medical condition, the mental emotional aspect. In the case of my prostate cancer, from before I ever had a biopsy and all the way through my recovery, the mental and emotional aspect probably accounted for how much? 80% of the hardship. Now I ask you, my friends, we do a lot of clinical planning for the body, right? How many spiritual care plans do we have? Could we revolutionize medicine with spiritual care planning? I believe that is an opportunity that you have that's remarkable. I believe if you'll simply do what my surgeon friend does and take home the night before all the people you're going to see and simply pray for them that night and pray for them the next morning and let them know that you, have been pr that you prayed for them. That simple message to them will open them up to all kinds of conversations and all kinds of opportunities with your staff and all kinds of ways to deal with them. And you may say, look, I know that's gonna take mountains of time and all we have to have is a few of these people who are so, in, so dependent that and so needy that the minute you ask them what you can do for them, they spill it out and they'll spend hours with our people and drain all my time and take away everything. That's true. You have to have a way to distribute that. We could talk about how to distribute that. In our church, one of the things that I do, because we have a, a, a church that started in our living room, Mark comes to it periodically along with Tini and speaks there. We now have 200 people attending our church, and we have no paid pastor. So we have to find a way to distribute, and we cannot, when we find a person who's needy, we have at least three people that they can come to. Because if you don't, what will happen, it will wear them down, it'll wear you down, and it will imply that what they need is more personal care of another individual, just simply providing for them, and that will turn them in instead of turning them up or out. And so what happens is you have, there's a strategy by which you can get there. We don't have time to cover that strategy tonight, 
but there's a very good strategy of where you can deal. What you need to do, what is the opportunity of medicine is to have opening questions for the spirit and the mind and the body, but also to engage your staff who may find themselves only in routine activity, suddenly finding themselves in meaningful activity when they send out an appointment card and just scribe on it or it's on it, we'll be praying for you in, in, in a week before your appointment and would you, if you have anything, please leave us a message. When they send out the automated message, if you have the technology, to remind people of the car that they sh of their appointment, remind them, give them the opportunity to leave a voicemail of what you could pray specifically for them for. It will change your perspective. It will change their interaction. It will give you the opportunity to create life drama as opposed to simply life episodes. So what happens in this experience is if you go the next mile and you start explaining care, so you care for the body in the first one, in the second one, you start explaining the care to the mind and engaging the mind, explaining the circumstance, helping them understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, suddenly they take on a new level of appreciation of care and you are admired. So if you care for the body, you're appreciated. If you care for the mind and the body, you're admired. But watch what happens when you care for all three. The power of the whole person care, yet there is a very, very simple way that some of the hospital staff made a huge difference for me. It was all in how they interacted with me, nothing big, just a simple smile and little pieces of courtesy and kindness and showing a little interest in me personally. What happens is these patients, when you actually interact with them on the spiritual level and enter into the spiritual part of their life, they crescendo their attitude and their loyalty, and the crescendo is expressed in the language. They start talking in specifically language of family. They say they treated me like family. This is like my home. They, they actually cared for me like a brother, a mother, a father, a sister, and they start using family language. And now, instead of being just appreciated or admired, you are now adopted. And when you're adopted, that is the greatest compliment to you as a caregiver, that you have entered in the caregiver circle of the master's touch. And it's mastering the art of patient experience. So basically, the next thing I want to show you is that in your experience, if you would graph the journey through your appointment, and tomorrow we're going to talk about a design day. Disney actually does a design day for the experience they want you to have in the parks. And I'm going to talk about how we try to take a design day and a design experience in the hospital. If God was, took time to design the seven days of creation, what it would do for us if we designed the entry into our experience and into our uh, environment. And we're going to talk about how to create that immersive environment and how to, how to shape that for you. So what we found is that there's different ways that people experience and the needs that they have. These are the patient priorities. And I'm sorry, the slide is cut off over there. You can see it on that one. And you can see on the vertical vector is how high the priority. It's intensity of need, how much they need something. And on the horizontal, it's over time. So if you take this in the hospital, this is a three and a half day stay. So over that period of time, when they first arrive, the first thing they need is attention. So I, my guess is in your situation, it's very similar, even if you're not running a hospital, when people arrive in your office, or in your, the first thing they need is somebody to recognize them. There's nothing like walking in an office and finding the sliding glass uh, waiting slide closed, and the message is, don't interrupt us because you see shadows behind the glass, but you never see it open. 
And uh, I've been there in those kind of offices too. What happens is they need attention and then in our hospital wayfinding is high and you'll see things like environment is low when they're in high pain. As they are around, it becomes more and more important. Convenience is low, it becomes more important. The desire to escape becomes more important than the last few days of their stay. <laughs> the desire to be engaged becomes more important to them. But notice two things that stay constant. They are the two lines at the top, caregiving and comfort giving. Now, caregiving and comfort giving means that there are two classes of people who work in your practice. There are the caregivers, and those are the folks who are licensed to be able to do the medical procedures that are within the clinical realm. But there's the comfort givers, and that can be everybody. And what you have the opportunity to do is inspire people to become and view themselves as comfort givers and part of the spiritual care team that is now distributed across all people as opposed to simply localized within those who have a license. So you have a license to treat the body, but everybody has the privilege and calling to treat the spirit and the mind. Nobody, nobody told me all this time about my coat. My wife isn't in the audience. This is terrible. So anyway, one of my church members, my doctor Sandy is back here, and she'll tell her. <laughs> but that's okay, Sandy, just uh, let me pass on that one. So you have caregivers and you have comfort givers. And the, the opportunity we're going to talk about tomorrow is how to actually bring your comfort givers into the whole process so that they don't sit, feel incrementalized. Because they don't have a license, they often don't feel like they're part of the real medical delivery. But you can give them a license to be able to deliver to the spiritual needs, and you can show them that that's 80% of the experience. And that's a fa fabulous place to give them a sense of meaning. So what you have is an opportunity in our hospital to create the Florida hospital story, the individual story, and then create our healing ministry story. So tomorrow we're going to talk about how do you create, what is your story, why were you called, how do you express that in your facility so that when they walk in, they capture it and get a sense of your story? Then you may say, well, I don't control the environment that I work in. It's somebody else who's in charge of the things they put on the wall. I'd like to change things. All I'm asking you is control the space in which you're in. Don't, th don't just control what you can control. We'll start there and we'll work out. And you'll be amazed at how things change and how people will be able to be affected by that. So here's what we're, we're going to uh, basically stop with, and that is the care model that we found in our system. This is what they said is the difference in our care. When it really happens as the healing ministry of Christ, it happens like this. In the old care model, a person was a patient. They said they're a body and they have an illness. So they're that gallbladder in room 425. Remember that? Then, then we move to where you're a customer. You're a transaction, you have a, pot, you have a payer, you have the ability to have a choice, so we treat you as your customer, thank you for choosing us, you know, we're really glad you're here, kind of an attitude. And then we got a hold of Ritz-Carlton and said, you're a guest, you're a guest. Now we have ladies and gentlemen caring for ladies and gentlemen. But then you move to family. Welcome us, love us, belong, help us belong. You are children of God caring for children of God. That's the feeling of family. That's what happens in this environment. We're going to talk to you about how we took our model for caring, 
and we took it from the Sabbath, and we're going to show you how we extract it from the Sabbath, because it's important for you to have a model for caring that comes back to an actual understanding that will transcend both, that will apply for both healing, but it'll also apply for health, because we're here to be at the cross-section of where we meet a person. We are going to do what John Harvey Kellogg said a sanitarium was supposed to do. Remember how he named it a sanitarium? He said, he would not name it a sanatorium. He would change it just a little bit, just like he changed granose to granola. He liked to do those kinds of things. He changed sanatorium to sanitarium. And sanatorium was a place to go and die. What did he say sanitariums were? A place to get well and stay well. That's your practice, a place to get well and stay well. You have the ability to do the two touches of God. God touched the world first with health in the creation story you have that opportunity to bring health to this society that desperately needs the relevance of the Adventist health message in the 21st century. I believe Adventist health message, the creation health model, is the answer to healthcare reform. I believe we have the credentials to lead healthcare reform. I believe we're relevant today because we were born in healthcare reform. Our first institution was called the Western Health Reform Institute. Here we are talking about health reform in the 21st century who's been doing it for the last century, who's been leading it, why can't we lead the future? And I'm excited about that opportunity and thrilled that the God has put us at this point in the crossroads of history where we can lead the future. Florida Hospital has had the opportunity to, for the first time in our history, and for the first time in the state of Florida, to be declared the number one hospital by the US News and World Report. That is not an achievement of a corporate chest pounding. That is achievement of a master. That is achievement of, of seeking God's will. We do not go there because we are seeking corporate identity, because unless we succeed and are on top, we can't call ourselves a, a, a reputable hospital. We are there because God has said we should be the lead and not the tail. Amen. We need to all be there. How excellent is thy name in all the earth. But the excellence that we need to bring is not the clinical excellence of people who are lost in the background of proving the matter of this world and saying, I can't understand creation because I can't actually physically explain how it could have occurred in that period of time. And I say to them, that's a fine journey. Go on that journey if you want to discover matter. But the purpose of the creation story was to explain meaning. And that's what we're here for. And if you understand the meaning of the creation story, you understand you were made for love. And if you understand the meaning of the creation story, you understand that God was a God of love. And it changes people dramatically, and particularly men, because it frees you from the macho belief that you are not romantic. For the very first words of a man were a song to a woman, Eve, written in the Hebrew. So never believe the macho ideal that men are not made for romance. They were, they are, and they forever will be. For God is love in person. So Sabbath is love in time, and your practice is love in place. May you bring the family of God to the children of God, that they will have a new story, because together you've co-created the story of eternity in your practice your touch may be eternal. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.